So there was a gal today during our Q&A session, I don't remember who it was, but you'll know who you were. You asked me a question that pertained to your daughter, who is no longer calling God good. Please see me afterwards. I want you to bring your phone and take a picture of this. Deal? Cool. All right. Then, I gave you this sheet today, and I've had a few questions about it. Please know that as you go through these verses, it may not be very clear exactly what God is commanding of you. That's exactly right. So for instance, the one on music, which is the one that was posed to me, it has Romans 12:22 on there that says, do not conform any longer to the pattern of this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind. So now I think about that, I think, is the music transforming my mind into a pattern of what God would want or into something that looks more like the world? Because if I wake up in the morning and I'm singing an old Madonna classic, I'm thinking that doesn't look a whole like, lot like what God would want me to look like, right? But if I wake up, in the, like my alarm in the morning is set to worship music. So when I wake up, it's the first thing I hear. I love that. So I wake up singing worship music. Perfect. So when you look at these, some may not be really clear. That's the point. Because in our own lives, things aren't that clear. What we're doing is we're training our conscience. Conscience is a gift from the Lord. It will either accuse you or excuse you. Okay, and so that you're, that's your conscience. And I, I, my, aunt, uh, my Aunt Dixie, at 72 years old, she was a very spry 72-year-old, was fixing up her own her motorhome, and she was using a table saw. And her sleeve got caught, and it, her arm went right through. Indeed. And so now they sewed it back on, and it's a helper hand. It's a helper hand. So it's still there, but she has no feeling. And many times when I see her, she'll have burns on it. And I'm like, Dixie, what happened? She's always trying to curl my hair. You know, and I'm like, oh, okay. But that's what it's like if we numb our conscience. If we cut it off from the source of truth, we won't even know when we're searing it. And so if we're gonna train up our conscience, what we can do is, is in the word of God, get yourself a good accountability partner, get a mentor maybe from church. Those are things we're gonna talk about tomorrow too. But one way we can quiet our conscience is we tell it to shut up. You hear it, you know, and you're like this, no, don't, uh-uh, mm. Don't talk to me, conscience. Your conscience is a gift from God. It's the soul's warning system, really. But if you dull it long enough, it won't warn you any longer. And so the whole point of this sheet is to make sure that we, we know where we're gonna compromise, we put our line in the sand, and we start to train up our conscience. My rule on music, I don't listen to any secular music. I don't. Because music lyrics tend to play in my head over and over. I would prefer not to put anything in that's, that's not what I would want to listen to. My only exception is if, there's, if I'm at a wedding and they play dance music, I might Macarena, you know, type of thing. Or, and I'll totally do the chicken dance. I'll totally do that. I can do a mean chicken dance too. So, so hopefully that clears this up. It, it isn't clear. That's the point. That's the point. It's up to you to determine what would be pleasing to God. Would you do what you're doing if he was sitting next to you? That's usually my test. Would I listen to what I'm listening to if I was sharing popcorn with the Lord? Okay, so perfect. Okay, um, all right, I'll give you one funny story about Mitchell because somebody asked me for a funny story about Mitchell. So, and I have lots of funny stories about Mitchell. Indeed, he, um, well, and I'll get to that in a minute, but when he was five years old, he was sleeping in my bed with me because my husband travels a lot for work. And so he was sleeping in there and I love, oh, I love when they sleep with you. They're just snuggly, right? And I woke up in the morning and he was still sleeping and the sun was kind of coming down on his face and it was this profile. And so you could easily, you could pick up like the little fuzzy things on his nose, like the hair. Oh, and the sun was glistening off of it like the morning dew. And I was looking at him, I'm like, oh, he's just dreamy. And almost as though he felt me looking at him, he raised his hand up in the air and I thought, here comes, he's just gonna put his arm right around me. And he raised it up like this and he, he like, you know, extended his index finger like this, and then he dug right into his nose. And he pulled out a huge booger, and he laid it on the pillow between us, and gave me a super awesome illustration for what sin is like. <laughs> I didn't want to get near it, <laughs> right? But it, that was five, and he, he lets me tell the story, but not often, so don't tell him I told you. Perfect. All right, so let's recap where we've been so far, shall we? Friday night, last night, we've been a lot of places in just two days. How Jesus, who Jesus is, who God is, that Jesus came to deal with our sin. We're all individually guilty, but we don't have to be. 
At the end of tonight, we have a time of prayer. At this time of prayer, I really am encouraging those people in this group, and in a size group like this, there's gotta be some. If you don't know the Lord, and you're still sitting with individual guilt, will you please come up? I would love a chance to talk with you. I had one sweet girl last week come up and pray with me, and she, heaven rejoiced as she accepted the Lord. And another girl last week from, from retreat came up and said that um, at a retreat I was at with her years ago, God, I, got to take, I got to bring her to the Lord like five years ago, and she was here. It was so sweet. And then she sent me an email with her family picture and said, our whole family's raising our kids in the Lord. Oh, what an encouragement. So don't be, there is no shame in that. We all had to do it, right? We all have to come to that place where we come to our senses, get out of our comfort zone, and seek the Savior. So tonight afterwards, I'm gonna stick around here. It would be my intention and my love and my honor to join you in giving your life to the Lord. So if that's you, please come up and speak with me after. Amen? Amen. Amen. This morning, we dealt with how God didn't just come to deal with our sin. He came to deal with our shame, right? And I think we all left feeling like I'm ready to put down that bad boy. Right? And tonight we're going to look how God came to deal with our fear. We're going to have to buckle up for this one. Get that hand in the air. You guys remember the noise. Spit on your neighbor. All right? In love. Here we go. I don't see everybody's hands in the air. Okay, here we go. Ready? One, two, three. Yeah, you guys did that so good. That was good. Awesome. All right. So. When we are looking at this, let's start out before we look at fear. We're going to be tearing apart Psalm 3. So if you want to pull up Psalm 3, that's where we're going to be. Uh, Tim Keller did an amazing sermon on Psalm 3. I'm using a lot of his outline and adding my fluff to it. So if you're listening to this and you've heard this sermon, yes, I'm absolutely taking some of this from Tim Keller. But Tim Keller took it from God, so I'm thinking it's cool. Right? And I just told you that I'm going to use his outline, but I'm going to add my special flavor to it. So it is so good, but I think as a woman, we need to add some, some zip to it. So we're going to do that. All right? But when we're looking at this, what we have to start with are our expectations. Because our expectations determine what I would call our emotional leaks. And so, for instance, if you were going to show up at a hotel room and I told you that the room you're about to enter is a honeymoon suite... And it's just an average hotel room. And you open the door, you would be disappointed because you had expectations of a honeymoon suite. Whereas if you came and arrived at the, at the suite and I said, this is like a jail cell in here, man. And you open it up, you would be pleasantly surprised. And so what our emotional leaks show us is what we were expecting of God. So if I get angry... It shows me that I was expecting God to do something for me he didn't do. If I am jealous, then I'm expecting that God would do for me what he's doing for somebody else. And if I'm worried, I'm expecting that God would show up for me down the road, but I don't know if he will. I don't know if he has the resources to. I don't know if he's really good. I don't know if he even knows I'm here. Right? And so all of our emotional leaks show what our expectations are of God. And so we want to change those expectations, but we also want to look to Scripture to see what we're dealing with here. So Psalm 3, we're going to tear it apart. It's not long. It's only, you know, eight verses, and we're going to go through all eight. All right? So hopefully you are ready. Here we go. And David, just to give you a little bit of this um, history, David, remember, um, was the one with the big sin, Right? If we were to label big sins, his was the one we like to talk about because it makes us feel like our sin isn't that bad. I mean, when you sleep with somebody's wife and then have him killed, that's a pretty big sin, right? So that one always makes us feel a little bit better, like, well, at least I didn't do that one. So he has some major sin in his background. When he's writing this psalm, what he's talking about is his son Absalom is, is really arranging a coup to overtake him. So there, he's, he's got a literal army after him. And so what he does is he shows us two steps down into his fear and four steps out. But before we look at the four steps out, we have to look at the two steps it took him to get down. And so let's do that. Here we go. Psalm 3, verses 1 and 2. Two steps down. Lord, how many are my foes? How many rise up against me? Many are saying of me, God will not deliver him. And in this portion of scripture, we see two steps down. The first one is that first portion, Lord, how many are my foes? How many rise up against me? Literally, 
an army. There is a real physical fear. If you had an army after me, I would feel some fear. Almost like if I was, when I was taking the walk on the road today and, and Heather over there told me there were bear in the woods and all of a sudden I'm like, well, now I'm afraid. You know, I mean, there's a real fear, right? I mean, if a bear came out of the woods, I'd be like, that freaks me out. I'm kind of afraid of that. It's a real fear. But then he has this other fear in here. Many are saying of me, God will not deliver him. Remember, this comes after Saul, who was who's chastised and, and taken out of the favor of the Lord because of his sin. And David had a great sin. And so now he's perceiving what others are thinking of him. And so he has a psychological fear going on, which would be more of a debilitating fear. One is a real healthy fear, and the other is a debilitating fear. And so we're going we're gonna to really look at those, okay? This is totally relevant to our age of anxiety and worry. And that's why I picked this as a topic, because I think even if you don't suffer from anxiety, as women, we suffer from worry, and we suffer from fretting, and we suffer from control and fear. And so we're going to pick this apart. So a healthy fear would be like I'm walking across the highway, and a car careens out of control and comes right at me, and I jump out of the way. A healthy fear made me jump. An unhealthy fear, the debilitating fear, is that after I've jumped to safety, I replay the incident in my head all day long, and it gives me a sense of fragility. I feel very fragile. I feel the brevity of life knocking at my door. That's the debilitating fear of anxiety or worry that lingers after the moment. So if we were to put these side by side on a chart, it would look something like this. Healthy fear is specific. It's like, it's for this moment. And it's constructive or helpful. Saved my hiney on the highway, right? Debilitating fear is not specific. It doesn't have a beginning or end point that's associated with a circumstance. And it's undefined. You don't even know why it's there. A healthy fear will help you to react to help out of fear. So if your son or, or daughter is on the playground and, and they're swinging on the swing and you can see, you know, your other kid is walking right in front of them as they're swinging forward, a healthy fear says, get them out of there, right? It happened to me on a playground once, my son was gonna fall off a slide and I'm not the quickest, like, in the drawer here, you know? I mean, when people get hurt, I freeze. Like, I can see it happening, I'm like, oh, that's gonna hurt. And then I'm really good after the blood starts. Like, then I'm in right? But this time, my son, he was totally teetering on the top of that slide. It was one of those old metal school slides, those slippery ones. And so as he was teetering, I don't know even how I got there, but I got there, right? And I, I caught him as he, as he left. Now, I caught him and dropped him and he broke his collar, but you know, it's fine. <laughs> I don't think it was, I think it was a buckle fracture in his wrist now that I think about that. But yeah, so he, he did get injured still, but I still caught him. I was still there. You know, I got him and I don't know how I got there. He would have gotten more hurt if I hadn't got there. But that unhealthy fear paralyzes you, and it makes it so that you're unable to act at all. At all. You can't act at all. A healthy fear is that fight or flight system which is set into action by something. It's that autotomic nervous system. And it flashes on, you act, and it flashes off. Debilitating fear, that nervous system flashes on and stays on all the time. You're always at this heightened sense of awareness. It's exhausting. Exhausting. A healthy fear comes in like a storm, and after the storm is done, everything's greener. An unhealthy fear is like a Seattle drizzle. It kind of comes in, it lingers and lingers and lingers and lingers. David's identity is being assaulted here. He has a real threat, and he has a psychological threat. So he shows us the two steps down. One is healthy and one is not. But he doesn't leave us hanging. He shows us four steps out. Anybody want to know what those are? Yes. Yes, we do. Absolutely, we do. So I'm going to show you these four together. Whoops. I did it again. I was actually kind of hoping I would mess up. Nope. Back up. Back up. Back up. There it is, thank you. Four steps out, perfect. So these are your four steps out. There are four listed there. We're gonna go through them one at a time, but I wanted to list them for you so you could see them. 
Step number one, follow your thread. I'll explain it. Step number two, relocate your glory. I'll explain it. Step number three, see the substitute. I'll explain it. And step number four, remember the peeps. I'll explain it. Perfect. And I'm going to explain it because God explains it. So it's not my words, it's his. So it makes sense that we would go to him for that. So let's do the first one. The first verse says, Psalm 3, verses 3a. We're going to take that top one that's in italics. But you, Lord, are a shield around me. Here's the follow the thread. This portion, that tiny little bit, is follow the thread. Okay, you, O Lord, are a shield around me. There are two kinds of shield. One is for hand-to-hand combat. It's the little shield like this. You would take it, you'd have a sword, and you'd go against somebody, and you would shield yourself with them. That's one kind of shield. That is not the kind of shield we are talking about here. The kind of shield we are talking about here is this one. This is a shield you would use when you are following your general into battle. It's the size of a small door, and it covers you, and I was lucky enough to find one. Right on, I know. This is about the size it would be, and you see how they use them. This is not to protect yourself from getting into battle. This is when you are following your general right into the battle. He leads you right into the battle. But he says, I will be a shield around you. This is what it looks like. He says, I will be your shield. I will protect you, but I'm going to take you into the battle. Okay? And we can say, whoa, that's, uh, that's kind of scary. Yep, and he does it on purpose. On purpose. We're going to see that in a minute. I'll give you another portion of scripture. We're going to use that. David says, I'm scared, but I remember that you're my shield. He doesn't say, I know that you'll keep me from danger. He says, I know that you'll protect me through the danger. Let me say that again. David says, David doesn't say, I know you'll keep me from danger. He says, I know you'll protect me through the danger. This kind of protection only works going forward in obedience. While I'm obeying and following, he promises to shield us through the danger, not from it. I'm going to say this in another way. If you're a Christian and you are following and obeying God, then anything, that, anything bad that happens to you is his shield around you, protecting you from something worse. I'm going to say that again because it is that good. If you're a Christian and you are following and obeying God, then anything bad that happens to you is his shield around you designed to protect you from something worse. I remember Ravi Zacharias talking about how he was continually being rejected from a career move. He really wanted to be a pilot. And he really thought he had this interview in the bag. I mean, they called him back for subsequent interviews and he was like, I'm in. Man, this is, this is sweet. I totally know I'm getting this job. Admittedly, a horrible student, so he was pumped up and excited. And then the guy called him and he said, you know what, we're not going to give you the job. There's, there's aspects to the job that, that just based on your psychological profile, I don't think you could perform. And he was like, man, this constant rejection. And then he says this, when God takes away from you something that you really, really want, it is to protect you for what he really wants for you. When God takes away from you something you really, really want, it is to protect you for what he really wants for you. If anybody knows Ravi Zacharias, I'm pretty happy he didn't end up a pilot. Right? He's the world premier apologetics preacher. And he is amazing. Amazing. God is using him. Awesome. This shield is of no help if you aren't following the general or obeying his commands. Imagine following the general into the, thing, into the, the, the battle, and he says, turn right. And you're like, no. I'm sorry, what? He expects that we're going to follow his voice, his commands. The most lethal thing that can happen is disobedience. Because here's what would happen. I decide to turn around, and guess what happens? I've exposed my backside. Right? You turn around, and you, you're, you're out of the protective shield. You can't do that. There's no turning back. There's no turning back. I remember a steam captain who landed in, at this place. like He, he landed, and they were going to um, locate this place and kind of feel it out for possible settlement. And a lot of his... his uh, I don't, I don't want to say soldiers, but a lot of the, the crew were starting to get nervous, and he could tell they were getting nervous, and they were talking about, well, maybe, we should, maybe we should go back. Maybe we should go back. So he burned all the ships. 
He said, nope, nobody's leaving now. That's what this looks like. We gotta burn the ships of disobedience so we don't go backwards. We have to burn that down. Here's your practical tip. I don't know if I have this on a slide, I'm not sure, but it doesn't matter. Practical tip on this. Speak your fears out loud. Confess them to an accountability partner. What is the very worst thing that could happen? What's the worst thing that could happen? You die, and you're with Jesus. I mean, really, reality. You die, and you're with Jesus. That's the worst thing that could happen? My son Mitchell at a, a camp last two weekends ago fell off of a, one of those hanging ninja warrior courses and everybody thought he broke his uh, wrist. He didn't end up breaking his wrist, but it was swelled up. And you know, I went into the infirmary to see him where he, he was kind of hanging out. And he's like, you know, mom, the worst thing that could have happened was I could have died. <laughs> yep, I'm gonna agree that would be pretty bad. <laughs> you know? And he's like, but then I'm in heaven and then I can hear everything. That's not such a bad deal. I'm like... Wow, what a perspective. I thought, Mitchell, there's adults who need that perspective, right? I'm like, whoa, he just, he was, it's almost like he's untouchable. Wow, that was crazy to me. Now, where, you know, we think about this, and there's this awesome story um, told of the grandmother and the goblin. Do you guys ever heard this story about the grandmother and goblin? Well, in this story, there's all these goblins that are coming after this little girl. Like, they kind of sneak into her room at night and they scare her. And the grandmother says, okay, here's what I want you to do. At night, when you start being fearful, I'm going to give you a string. Hide that string under your pillow. And when you start to fear, tie it around your pinky and then just follow the string. Follow the thread. And the daughter said, the granddaughter says, okay, well, where's it going to lead me? She says, well, to me. It's going to take you to me. She said, but I'm going to warn you, it might not take you like the straight path. Like you're going to leave and you'll see my bedroom and you'll want to jump, jump in there because you'll assume I'm there, but it might take you a different way. And the granddaughter says, but you promise it'll take me to you. Grandmother says, yes. Okay. She goes to sleep and sure enough, she hears those goblins. She gets afraid. She grabs that string, puts it on and starts following it. And she says, as she exits her room, she looks and there's the grandmother's door and the string is going this way and the grandmother's door is that way. And she's like, huh? And she remembers her grandmother's voice. Just follow the thread. Follow the thread. And so she keeps following it and takes her outside into the dark, dank wilderness. And it takes her into, you know, deep woods and she's freaked out. And finally it takes her to this huge pile of rocks that seems insurmountable. And she looks and she's like, oh, no way. I can't do this. And so she turns around to go back and the string is gone. It only works going forward in obedience. And the same is true for us. It only works going forward in obedience. Where is our string, where is our thread taking us? Go with me, if you would, please, to put your finger on Psalm 3, and I'm going to pop you over to Matthew chapter 14, and we're going to look at Peter, and I love the fact that um, in harmony back there, and I do not ever, um, we don't like meet ahead of time and decide on which songs are going to go with the, the message, but it just amazes me every time their songs and how they message, message up with what God has me talking about too. So um, in this, we're talking about Jesus walks on water, and they had that song in there about him walking on water, and I'm like, are you kidding? That's so cool. So cool. We're Matthew chapter 14, and if you were to read this on your own, and I won't read the whole thing to you, but it's verses 22 to 36. But in this, this occurs after Matthew 8, in Matthew 8, there's this huge storm. The disciples are tested. They're out on the water. You know, they're like, Lord, Lord, wake up, wake up. And he's like, what? He's like, peace, be still. And the winds stop and the waves stop and everything's calm. They, they just saw him control the weather. They just saw him take down the storm. And now we're six chapters later in, ver in chapter 14. And they, they just get done. And here's the funny thing. Verse 22, immediately... He made his disciples get into the boat and go ahead of him to the other side while he sent the multitudes away. He sent them out to the, the, the sea. He sent them. He made them go out there. He did. And then he waited on the shoreline. Scripture tells us praying for them as they were out there struggling in the storm. And today as I talked to a few women, they were saying, man, I've, I've really been struggling with this and I, I don't hear anything from the Lord. I, I get it. The teacher is always quiet during the test right? Because the teacher knows you already have the answer. 
Take it as a compliment if the teacher is quiet during the test because he knows that you are equipped. You have the answer. Follow your thread. But here's what happens in this story, in this account. Verse 23, after he had sent the multitudes away, he went up to the mountain himself to pray. And when it was evening, he was there alone. This means that they were out on that sea for six to 11 hours battling the storm. Some of our lives feel like that, don't they? Like we've been battling the storm for a long time. This is a real storm and they are likely exhausted. Exhausted. But the boat was already many stadia away from the land, battered by the waves, for the wind was contrary. In the fourth watch of the night, he came to them walking on the sea. And when the disciples saw him walking on the sea, they were frightened, saying, it's a ghost. And they cried out for fear. They were more scared of him than the storm. But immediately Jesus spoke to them, saying, take courage, it is I, do not be afraid. And Peter answered him and said, Lord, if it is you, command me to come to you on the water. And he said, come, Peter got out of the boat, walked on the water, and came toward Jesus. But seeing the wind, he became afraid. If your eyeballs are on Jesus and you divert to look at your circumstances, you will fall. And so you may be struggling with something. Keep your eyes on Jesus. I remember uh, one of our retreat speakers told a story of a little boy who went in the woods with his dad and he had to pee. You know, he, had, he had to use the bathroom and the dad's like, well, just go in the woods. You're a boy. And he goes, it's not that one. And dad's like, oh, okay, we should probably get you somewhere. So they drove and drove and drove and found this seedy little bar that had a bathroom. But when he went in, the entire walls of this latrine were, were just covered with pornographic, horrific pornographic images. But the boy needed to use the bathroom. The father covers his eyes and he takes him and he sits him down and he puts his hands like this and he goes, just look at me, just look at me, just look at me. That's it, just look at me. If we keep our eyes here, we will be just fine. It's when we start doing this to look at our circumstances again and again. But, but, my, but my, you will fall. Follow your thread. Keep it there. What's the point of all that? I love how this ends. He became afraid, beginning to sink, and he cried out, Lord, save me. And immediately Jesus stretched out his hand and took hold of him and said to him, oh, you of little faith, why did you doubt? And we think, yeah, Peter, little faith. You know what? That little faith saved him. How much faith do you have to have? Faith like a mustard seed? It's not the amount of faith you have, it's the object of your faith that saves you. The strength of your faith will not save you. The object of your faith will. Going to Great America this summer, I went on the Great American Eagle. I hate roller coasters. I loved them when I was a kid. I'm old now, okay? And as we went there, I, w I waited in line because I, I wanted to stay with my family. So I said, I'll just wait in line with you and I'm going to just walk through. You know, I'll, just, I'll be one of those people. You can caca at me all you want, you know. And so we get up there and, and they're all razzing me. Come on, mom, just get in. And I'm sitting there, I'm like, you know, all I have to do really is just get in and buckle up and I don't have a choice then, right? And my one daughter, Cora, got in and she got in and she was hands in the air. Kate's back there like, I can totally see that. Hands in the air screaming like, bring it on, bring on the ride. And so I step over and go put my sunglasses over there. And in a moment of, I don't know, insanity, I went back and sat down at the moment that the lady came by and tsh -tsh -tsh, me in. Like, it was too late. I'm in. I'm in. And I'm like, okay, we're going. And I white knuckled all the way through there. I think I was drooling. I think it was splattering back and Cora's back there, bring it on. And I'm like, oh. the reality is we both finished the ride. Because the object of our faith was the same. She might have looked better doing it. <laughs> no, no, she did look better doing it. But the object of our faith was the same. And so it's not the strength of your faith, although that will give a, a better ride for you, but it is the object of your faith that saves. Remember that. I remember my son Mitchell had a cochlear implant surgery last year because his hearing just tanked. So we went in and they, it's a major surgery. It's about a quarter of a millimeter away from the facial nerve muscle. So it's, I mean, and, and as, as a parent, I have to sign a slip saying that I'm, I'm literally rendering my son completely deaf, taking away all of his residual hearing so that they can do this surgery that will allow him to hear better. But I'm not gonna lie to you. I was nervous. I was definitely like, man. We had over 400 people praying and I was praying and I, I shared with a few friends, I'm praying for God to save him I, I don't think, or, or heal him, but I don't, I don't think he will. 
Yeah, I don't think he will. And I had a couple friends, please don't ever do this to somebody either, who said to me, you don't have enough faith. You don't believe enough. It says, if you believe, remember the father with his son and the son, you know, you know he's like, oh, you have little faith, you know, and he's like, oh, father, forgive my, forgive my unbelief. No, that's not what he said. The father said, help my unbelief. There isn't one place in scripture where it says, forgive my unbelief. Not one. It only ever says, help my unbelief. I think there's a time in all of our lives where we come to where we're like, help me, Lord. Help me believe that you can do this. I also know there's only 20 healings in the entire Old Testament. And in the New Testament, when Jesus comes on the scene, he pretty much heals all of Palestine. And so the whole point of healings was to point people to Jesus. Why? So he could do what he said he did in Matthew. And he says, I came to forgive sins. I'll do the miracle so you know that I can do that. Well, we already know he can forgive sins. He gave us the Bible. So in my mind, I'm like, he can heal him, and I'm going to pray for that. And I see him do healings. For some reason, I just, I don't, that's not where I feel like he was leading us. And I was, I, I was nervous. Surgery came, surgery went, textbook surgery. He goes back in for his second surgery one year later, next Monday. I have complete peace. Because he did it once, he's going to do it again. Right? Or he can, and if he, choo- if he chooses not to, then he chooses not to. But here's what I learned in the interim in that year. My son wants to be a missionary, which means he wants to tell people about Jesus. And somebody beautiful shared with me the fact that the number one unreached people group in the United States are the deaf. <laughs> Wham! <laughs> I mean, come on. And I'm going to call that like a clinky-dink? No, no. And so Mitchell and I are now on this road. We've been doing sign for a while, but now we're, we're doing sign, right? We're, we're taking it up a notch because he might be the missionary to the deaf. Who knows? And I share that story with you just to show you all this. And so when we look at this, this account about Jesus walking on the water, there's three things it reveals to you. One is your walk is to Jesus, Follow your thread. Where? To Jesus. Why? Because the purpose is to reveal more of Jesus to you, more of his power. What did they do when they saw it? They worshiped him. They feared him as he walked out. They saw him for how great he was. He takes you into the trial so you will follow your thread back to him, see him as greater still, and then, remember, God is all-knowing. He already knows the level of your faith. This test was not to reveal your faith to God. It was to reveal the measure of your faith to you. It was for you. I love that. What a generous God to show me the level of my faith so that I can take it up a notch maybe or I can relish in the fact that the object of my faith is correct. Amen? Amen. Awesome. All right. We're on. We're going to keep going here. That was the longest one, I believe. Um, Oh, I might have a practical tip on here. If I don't, then... Yes, practical tip. That's the speak your fears out loud. Good, I'm glad I had one of those, and I have one more. Practical tip number two. Find someone who has been through the ringer, which means they followed their general into the battle, so to speak, and whose faith has not been shaken. Spend some time with them. Find someone who has been through the ringer and spend some time with them if their faith has not been shaken. Because that's somebody you want to learn from. That's somebody you want to learn from. My friend Donna found somebody like that last year and I won't tell you that I haven't been very envious of that because that's been sweet to watch that woman minister to her and she's been through the ringer and she's helping my friend Donna too just by ministering to her. I love that. That's what we need to do. If you've been through the ringer and your faith has not been shaken, your prayer should look like this. God, show me someone who needs to learn what you taught me. And then be open and available and approachable. Love that. Love that, love that, love that. Okay, number two, relocate your glory. So Psalm 3, 3b here. My glory, the one who lifts my head high. You are my glory and the lifter of my head. 
So this is David, and David, David would not say this if something else hadn't been his glory first. He's like, you are now the lifter of my head, the one and only one who matters. And so you can picture somebody downtrodden, and then the parent comes up and they grab that kid by the chin and they're like, buddy, right? And so he says, let me lift your head. He says, my opinion matters most. You have the smile of God. What could the frown of man do to you? if you have the smile of God and he's the one who's lifting your head. He realized that he was getting his glory, his weight and importance somewhere else. And he says, I'm not gonna do that anymore. Psalm 34, four says, I sought the Lord and he answered me. He delivered me from all my fears. This is what he did. He sought the Lord. And the Lord makes true to his word. He says, seek me, you'll find me. And he answered me. And he delivered me from all my fears. If you've located your glory in something else, you've put it in something that's finite, which means it's limited, which means it may drop off or change at any moment. And we do do that. There was a boy who played on a football team, and every day he'd show up to practice, and many times he would bring his dad in to show his dad where he played. He said, Dad, you know, this is where the bench is, and this is the field I play on, this is the, my spot on the field, and here's my locker. And the coach would watch him as he showed his dad all around the stadium. And one day, the coach learned that the, the dad had died. And the coach was very sad for the boy. The boy wasn't a very good player, you know, but he was still part of the team. And that boy came back, and he said to the, um, to the coach on that Saturday, right before the game, coach, play me tonight. Will you play me? And the coach knew, you know, the kid's hurting. <sighs> he says, yeah, you know what? We'll, we'll, we'll give you a minute or so. You know, I mean, I can't keep you in real long, but yes, I'll, I'll let you play. And the boy says, I'll do my best, coach. You won't even believe it. Coach is like, yeah, okay, 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 Scott. You know, puts him in, and they never took him out because he rocked that game, rocked that game. And he gets off the field, and the coach is like, dude, that was the best game ever. He said, you did so good. I get it. You were playing, you were playing for your dad. And, and the boy says, coach, you don't understand. My dad was blind. This was the first time he could see me. We have a father in heaven with eyes to see. Who are we playing our game for? Who are we living our life for? Whose approval? Pick your audience. Pick your audience. Is it going to be sinful human beings who are flawed? Or will it be God the Father who has eyes for you? I want to illustrate this for you um, in a fun way. I need my three helpers up here because I think this will help you maybe get a better picture of, of what we tend to do to glorify ourselves. So I need Donna and, yeah, there they come. Perfect. So. Awesome. Oh, I have to, we might make a little mess, so I'm just going to put these down. These are for those of you that told me you were sleepy today. We're just going to keep you up with a little skit. Yeah, perfect. Awesome. All right, so, all right, this is my friend Donna. Everybody say hi, Donna. Hi. Yep. If you, need, uh, if you need warfare done by prayer, just let me know, and I'll hook you up with Donna. Perfect. Donna, you can come out here, so yeah, oh, I'm going to grab that. Um, yep. There it is. Perfect. Thank you. Here we go. Donna likes to play the ukulele because she has five kids, ages 13 to 2. She's a little stressed out sometimes, and so she likes to play the ukulele. It makes me feel better. It helps her feel better. And you know, if you guys need this little handheld mic so that they can hear you, that would be great, except I don't know how to turn it on. I just, Todd, I just like doing that. That's just fun for me. I think I got it. Right. Yeah? Yep. yep. Yep, perfect. All right, I'm going to give Donna, this is her cup of worth. She can't hold that and do that. This is her cup of worth. So let's say everybody in the world is given a cup of self-worth, and that's her cup. Okay, and we'll give you that too. So she likes to play that little, that little guitar. So yeah, play them a little ditty. I'll just do this. Isn't that good? Stress relieving. I know. I know. That is good. Perfect. Yeah, that's good. Awesome. Yeah, come over here. That would be good. <laughs> wow.
said it was, did a three-year-old's birthday party throw up on you? <laughs> wow. So if I came in right now, would anybody want a cup that couldn't be penetrated? Anybody? Uh, yeah. Yeah? Anybody else? Yeah, you think so? Yeah? Okay. This is a picture of how we run our lives. We fill up our self-worth when we put others down, and other people fill theirs up when they put us down. And many times, really, she could have walked in looking like this diva she does, and they could have just looked at her, and many times, you know what we do? We punch our own cup. Nobody even has to punch it. We do it for us, right? Absolutely. Can you give them a hand? Oh, delight. Oh, delight. I wanted to do that for you because I think a visual on that is so important. It's so key. Because as women, we tend to look for someone else to lift my head, for someone else to esteem me. And the way I do that is by comparing myself. It's the land of er, as Matt Chandler calls it. You know, I don't, I don't need to be rich. I just need to be richer than you, right? I don't need to be pretty. I just need to be prettier than you. And so we do this comparison game. And many times what we do is we put others down in order to fill up our self-worth. Jesus offers you a cup that can't be penetrated. He says, let me be the lifter of your head. And no one can do any harm to you, even if they try. And they will still try, because that's human nature. And then he asks you not to harm someone else to fill up your self-worth because your cup's not draining. You don't need to fill it up any other way. Take that picture with you. This is a real issue. Let me, let me read you a letter from a 22-year-old. This is about modesty, but I think it shows us what, what can happen when we start looking to other people to lift our head. She says, I will speak honestly here. I'm a 22-year-old single woman consumed with my physical appearance and how pretty others think I am. God's definitely working on me, though, because I don't buy clothes or other material things nearly as much as I used to. He's also given me a desire to dress modestly, but I still care a lot about how I look and find it hard to buy modest clothing because I think more revealing clothing is sexier. I continuously look for compliments, and when I do get one, my ego is fed. When I don't get one... My ego craves attention. I hate judging myself and others on their physical appearance. It's tiring, disgusting, and not at all pleasing to the Lord. Amen? Amen. Let the Lord be the lifter of your head. He gives us verses to go with this. In John 5, 44, he says, How can you believe when you receive glory from one another and you do not seek the glory that is from the one and only God. And then he goes on in Galatians 1.10 and he tells us, am I now trying to win the approval of human beings or of God? Or am I trying to please people? If I were still trying to please people, I would no longer be a bondservant of Christ. Those are some strong words from a loving father who knows how destructive the land of Ur can be. He says, I will be the lifter of your head. We fear, God, we fear man because we fear God so little. Back to day one last night, why do we study the attributes of God? Because the more I fear God, the less I will fear man. The more I fear God, the less I will fear what man thinks of me. Here's your practical tip. What do you spend your time feasting on? TGIF, Twitter, Google, Instagram, Facebook? I would say take a daily log. Keep a daily log in 15-minute increments. Log your time. How are you spending your time? What are you feasting on? Matthew 5.29 says, if your right eye causes you to sin, tear it out and throw it away. Obviously, we're not going to tear out our eye and throw it away, but at the very least, stop using your eye to feed your desire. Find the streams that are feeding the river of thought and destroy it. You have to find that stream. Follow your thread. See that he is the lifter of your head. If you continue to use your eye to feed your desire, that's what's going to come out. It's garbage in, garbage out. You know, corn in, corn out. Yeah, you guys got that. Perfect. 
I don't need to say anything more on that, right? You, I'm going to read this. This is not mine. This is Ravi Zacharias. You've heard his name a lot, not because he's my favorite, but he is one of my favorites. But he said this, and I, I have to read it verbatim because I don't think I could do it justice. You are without replication. You are one of a kind. The day you accept that the great grand weaver hardwired you like no one else, you will take that moment and realize that he can use you in a way and in a setting where he can use no one else. Yes, he has the great names like Moses and Paul, but he also has you. If Joseph was living today, do you know what they would make Joseph do? They'd make him market himself and he'd write a book on how to interpret dreams. And if Moses was living today, they would make him market himself and he would have to establish Bush University. (laughs) And if Esther was living today, she'd have to market herself and she'd have a whole makeup line and run a pageant annually that would be televised for the world to see. And so what we're told by society is if you're good at something, market it and everybody should be like you. No, absolutely not. I got a a call from, um, not a call, I was at a, a camp two weeks ago, and I happened at, I, at this camp, I had done a mother-daughter retreat a few years ago. My girlfriend then did it the year after me. And I talked to the, the director of the camp, and I said, oh, who do you have coming in for the mother-daughter retreat this year? And she's like, oh, that girl is coming back, my friend. She's coming back for a second year. The women really connected with her. We want to bring her back. Do you know what I heard? I heard you weren't invited back for a second year. Is that what she said? Did she say I stunk? She did not say I stunk. She said, my friend connected with them. So here's what I did. This is what I would do. If the enemy ever does that, that's envy. Envy and jealousy are sisters, but they're not the same. Jealousy means I really want that. Envy says, I want it, but it's not enough that I should have it. I don't want you to have it either. And here's the thing. That mother-daughter retreat would have fallen on one of the weekends I'm here. I couldn't have even done it. So what's my problem? Envy is my problem. Thinking my self-worth is wrapped up in whether somebody likes me enough to invite me back. So I emailed or texted her and I said, hey friend, I heard you were coming back to camp to speak again. What an awesome confirmation that God is speaking through you and the message is solid. Is it here's what the enemy wanted to do, that little sneaky spit? He wanted, (laughs) I have pet names, you bet. (laughs) He wanted to use your confirmation to bring me down. Because I'm going to Silver Birch to speak, and so I'd like you to pray for me, because I think it's only right that the person he tried to use to discourage me would be the one I go to to take the enemy down for me. Would you pray for me, friend? Right. And you know what she came back with? This is so good. She came back and she said, oh, friend, all caps, I totally get what you're feeling. I thought, oh, thank goodness, I'm not just a wacko. And then she said, here's the cool thing. I would not have even gone the first time if it hadn't been for you who encouraged me. Snap, 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 snap. (laughs) That was the enemy, by the way. Snap, 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 snap. (laughs) Right? Oh, and here's the thing. As soon as I texted that and I hit send, I had complete peace. Before I had her response, because I took the enemy down on his own territory. I said, no, you're not going to do that to me. You're not going to lie to me like that. That is a lie. I'm I'm not doing that. And quite frankly, that's her job, and this is my job. Like... he's a sneaky stinker all right so you're the lifter of my head I need to show you one more verse oh I have to tell you this so here's my shirt so my shirt says 1968 classic because this is the year I turned 50 yeah sure anyway (laughs) anyway something happens as you get older and what happens is you start to question your relevance somewhat and it's a lie and so I'll tell you ladies that are, are going to get to that age, fight it, own it, live it. Those of my friends that have been there and done that, own the age you are, who cares? And so I decided, you know what, enemy, you're not going to tell me that I can't still be effective for the Lord. I'm just going to wear that thing you're trying to make me ashamed of. And you know what? It's been quite the conversation piece. It's been fun. And so I just wear it. So do that. If, he, if there's something you're afraid of, follow your, your general right into it and say, you know what, I'm just going gonna, gonna to own it. I'm just going gonna, gonna to lay it out there. This is who I am. Like it or leave it. I find most people actually like it. Right? Whatever. Yeah, whatever. What's that? Oh, is it Old Navy? I don't know. 
You can check the tag for me later. Is it? You did, but yours said 1988, right? Yeah. <laughs> oh, I think I'm hilarious. Okay. I do. It's so funny. Okay, here's the verse for you guys to take with you. Isaiah 66.2. For my hand made all these things, thus all these things came into being, declares the Lord. But to this one I will look, to him who is humble and contrite of spirit and who trembles at my word. Can you please with me picture the creator God looking down on his obedient, broken, contrite, humble servant and saying, I'm going to intently gaze upon them with respect and adoration. Because that word, look, is nabat. And that's what it means. The creator God looks down and lifts our head, not just with like, oh, pity you. He lifts our head to gaze intently at us with an enraptured face. When he knows that a human being who is geared for fleshly sin will break themselves, contrite their spirit, and in obedience follow the Lord... He esteems that dust. That's us. He lifts our head and then he esteems us. Oh, he's so good. So good. Number three. See the substitute. Here it is. So Psalm 3, verse 4. There is a place for your sin, shame, and fear to be dealt with. Where is it? I call out to the Lord and he answers me from his holy mountain. Your sin has been dealt with. Your shame has been dealt with. Your fear has been dealt with. And here's what I'll tell you. To the degree that you find your significance on Calvary and what was done on that cross, that will determine the level of your anxiety. To the degree that you find your significance on Calvary and what was done on the cross, that will determine the level of your anxiety. Go back to the cross constantly. You might have doubts, but you know, John the Baptist had doubts. There's this portion of scripture where he was imprisoned and he was in that prison and he, the disciples come to see him and it wasn't like a, a minute's walk, it was quite a hike. And they went to visit him in that prison and he says, hey, will you, uh, I got a favor. Will you go back and ask Jesus, you know, is, is he really the one? Because I was expecting some fanfare and some blowing up stuff and like taking over the Roman kingdom and he's healing all these people. This isn't what I was expecting admittedly, sometimes it's not what we expect either. And we can start to doubt. But I love what John does when he doubts. He goes back to Jesus. He doesn't go to a secular counselor. He doesn't go to a friend who's going to tickle his ears and tell me what, what he wants to hear. He goes back to Jesus. And so you may leave here, and you may have truth up here, and then things start to happen. And it feels like things are falling apart. And you might start doubting, wait, that God I met at women's retreat and learned about, ah, I don't know, things aren't panning out the way. Go back to Jesus. Follow your thread back to Jesus. Relocate your glory. You've misplaced it. Go back. See the substitute, the one who took it for you. Last one. Here's the rest of the psalm. Psalm 3, verses 5 through 8. I lie down and sleep, I wake again, because the Lord sustains me. I will not fear, though tens of thousands assail me on every side, a very real fear. Arise, Lord, deliver me, my God. Strike all my enemies on the jaw, which means make them stop talking about me, right? Break the teeth of the wicked. From the Lord comes deliverance. May your blessing be on your people. Remember the peeps. This is therapy. Remember, hurt people hurt people. If somebody is hurting you, chances are they are hurting. If you can see them as hurting, it will help you to not be so hurt by them and instead perhaps even pray for them or not let their words affect and assail you so much. A man was on a train and his kids were crazy all over the place and the passengers were getting very frustrated. And finally he turned and it seemed like he wasn't even paying attention and didn't care. He was just staring out the window. And they were all like, oh, what is this dad doing? Man, and finally he turns to them and he says, oh my gosh, I'm so sorry. We just, we just came from burying their mother. And the entire train changed their tune and started inviting the kids up on their lap and playing games with them. And their patience level increased. When they could see that person is hurting, they weren't so annoying any longer. 
But here's what else I'll tell you. Hurt people hurt people. But hurt people, so you've got this person who hurt this person. Now this person's hurt. They can now help people. Hurt people hurt people. Hurt people help people. That is therapeutic. Remember the peeps. Remember the people. Get out there, serve, and help something, help somebody. The only fear that ever casts out fear is the fear of God. And so if you have the fear of God that's casting out your fear, you are now capable of going out and helping people. Because here's what happens. Fear is self-centeredness. Love is self-giving. So if I have a fear of God that reigns supreme over all other fear, then I'm now able to act in love and I can give of myself to others. And that is therapeutic. If you're not in a church, get in a church. Serve. Serve in their ministries. You're like, well, I'd serve already. Okay, well, find another place to serve if that's the case. Find someone who's hurting and go and help them. Someone needs physical labor done or maybe just needs a friend, a hug. Go and be that person to them. You will never deal with fear alone. The only way to finally deal with it is in community. Confess it. Admit it. Have someone pray with you. And have an accountability partner. (laughs) And get an accountability partner. Donna is one of my four accountability partners. I have four because I'm that desperate and in that much trouble. And so, but I can call on Donna at any time and say, Donna, I... We have this great thing. Like, we, we admit our junk. Like, she'll call me and be like, can, we, can you get together Thursday? I got some sin I got to confess. I'm like, oh, dude, should we really wait till Thursday? I totally, I can't wait, man. Let's do that right now because I got sin I got to confess. There is something about confessing your sin to another believer that just drains the life out of it. And then we pray about it, and it's over. It's over. Done. Accountability partner. They call you on your junk. Practical tip. Oh, that's perfect. Stop thinking about not worrying and do something else. This is why it's therapeutic. If I told you to stop smoking, you're like, okay, don't smoke, don't smoke, don't smoke. All you're doing is thinking about smoking. You're like, okay, don't, don't think about, don't worry. You're right, don't worry, don't worry, don't worry. Now you're worrying about not worrying. <laughs> that is not gonna help. Do something else. Get your mind off. Guess where you're gonna put it? Right here. That's where you're gonna put it. That's where you're gonna put it. One last thing, fretting is different. It's a sister to anxiety. Fretting is like anxiety, but it adds an element of control. You're worried so much that you're gonna orchestrate events to try to control the outcome. That's what fretting is. And fretting doesn't do anything for us. If you look at Genesis 22, there's this portion of scripture where Abraham is promised a son by God. And it takes so long, his his wife, Sarah, says, you know what? I tell you what, why don't you go sleep with our maidservant, Hagar, and we'll have a son that way, because it's taking the Lord forever. And so Abraham does. So he goes and sleeps with her. They have Ishmael. And then later, the promised son, the one God promised them, Isaac, is delivered. He comes. And in Genesis 22 is the portion of Scripture where Isaac is sacrificed up on the mountain. And here's how it reads. God said to Abraham, take Isaac, your son, your only son, and he calls him his only son. Was he his only son? No, he had Ishmael. But when you try to control things that God has already promised you, he will not even recognize the efforts of your own hands. He will not use them. He won't recognize that. He says, I will recognize what I promised you. How do we wait on the Lord? Unconditional obedience unrelenting prayer. That's how you wait on the Lord. Unconditional obedience, unrelenting prayer. You don't stop praying. The only thing you teach yourself when you stop praying is that prayer doesn't work. Don't stop. The Lord still hears you. On that note, I'm going to pray for you. Father God, Lord, I pray and I thank you so, so much. You came here this weekend and showed up big time, which is what you do best. Now, Father, I pray that you do what you promise in Scripture and reveal your truth to these ladies. Change lives, Lord. Transform people into your image. And I pray, Father, for those women in here whose heart is pounding fast right now because they know that the time has come for them to make a decision to spend an eternity with you or to still be individually 
considered guilty of their sin. If there is someone in here like that, Lord, I pray that you bring them up here after so I can pray with them or just speak with them. And if it's their, if it's their time and desire, Lord, and they've got to be all in to give their life to you and enter the kingdom. I pray for any woman in here who's been uh, riddled and taken in shackles by their fear. I pray that you rid them of that today, Lord. Help them to follow their thread, relocate their glory, and see the substitute. And then go out and remember the peeps. We pray this all in your precious son Jesus' name. And they all said? Amen. They all said? Amen.